What's up, everyone? Welcome to Simulation. I'm your host, Alan Sakyan. Super pumped to be talking about global enlightenment. We have Sperry Andrews joining us on the show. Hi, Sperry. Hey, Alan. Great to be here. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm very grateful to Ori Shapiro for introducing us and helping make this episode happen. Yeah, me too. Yeah. He's a fabulous guy. Yes, yes. And has been... Great friend of ours. Major asset in helping us enlighten. Yeah. For those that don't know, Sperry's background. He has 40 years of experience with humanity's capacity to share a commonly sensed consciousness. He believes our interconnectedness is meant to be felt and thought intuitively by every human being. He's founder and co-director of the Human Connection Institute, advisory board member of the Lifeboat Foundation, and research partner of the Consciousness Quotient Institute. And you can find all three of the links in the bio below. Sperry, I must start things off with this question. It's something that we're so passionate about and I'm super interested to hear your thoughts on it. Who are we? Why are we even here? Where did we come from? Where are we going? What is the nature of this reality? Mm. Yes, these are questions that I just instinctively, as a living, breathing human being, wanted to understand, having had a near-death experience when I was four, uh, and inadvertently found out what, uh, what exists beyond human life as... Um, as that which is deathless and cannot be destroyed or is timeless and ever-present as a formless consciousness existing without a body, heart, or mind as essentially non-existence uh, and sort of poised between existence and non-existence as this awakeness, this colorless light of consciousness and uh, and that really set uh, uh, you know, set the stage at the age of four to you know, really wonder about the answers to your question. What does it mean, deathlessness? And what does it mean that this consciousness permeates everything? And that what does is that all that is? Is that the creation itself is that? Mm. Deathless, aliveness, all permeating. Can you unpack what you felt and mm-hmm. how you continue feeling it? Yes, I can. Uh, well, maybe I'll start with a, something that has been said first centuries or thousands of years that uh, by sages and sadhus and yogis that if in life one dies to who they think they are uh, then when they physically die they don't die Uh, so that's in the literature for and there's this part of us which is um, uncreated they say we're unborn and in that sense we uh, were indestructible and immortal we're ever present we're part of the omnipresent, omnipotent omniscience that has been talked about in various religions and so forth and various, with various words. Well, what it is is that 
What has been denied by reductionistic science is uh, that which is not anything at all. Uh, yet there are physicists uh, like Alex Vilenkin and Alan Guth and even Stephen Hawking and others have said, yes, we can have a universe that arises out of nothing. Uh, that in quantum mechanics you can borrow an infinite amount of energy for an infinite amount of time uh, as long as you, um, you know, return it back to that which is nothing whatsoever. Well, even the most conservative astrophysicists are pretty much in agreement that in order to have the universe that we have, it had to have originated from nothing at all. And the amazing property of that which is nothing whatsoever is that it be being nothing, it cannot be divided against itself. It cannot be divided from itself. And so if you imagine that uh, that which is dimensionless can take form as a coordinate location, as a dimensionless point, which is still undivided from all that is dimensionless and nothing whatsoever. But now it's a dimensionless point as a coordinate location as the, in the origin of space and time. Well, what this causes of virtual equal and opposite forces to uh, take place or potentials that cancel to zero around this point and that foments this uh, inflation of, of more dimensionless points that are held together by these virtual potentials. And this is what it looks like uh, is the only thing that really makes sense for the origins of space-time, uh, energy and matter. So essentially you have space, which is made of the, you know, is, is a geometry of these points. So imagine how many infinite number of points can make up uh, space. It's countless, <laughs> that's why it's infinite. Mm -hmm. And yet these points are still fundamentally indivisible as if they were a single point. And in the physics of our three dimensions, our three dimensions actually, every point in three dimensions actually share a single polar point in what is called the fourth dimension of space, which is just a single dimensionless point where all points in three dimension, all coordinate locations, share that single point. So that single point has an instantaneous presence throughout all of three dimensional space time. That coordinates all electromagnetic and gravitational forces, which are in many respects uh, equal and opposite forces. Uh, all points expand kinetically to all other points. That's electromagnetic radiation. And all points collapsing towards every single point is gravitation. But because uh, the spaciousness of the universe is made up of a countless number of points, there's no way for their universe to actually uh, collapse to a single point because now it's an infinite number of points that are, are uh, the extent of, by latest estimates, two trillion galaxies which are expanding at an ever-increasing rate uh, by best estimates. Okay, so we go from a initial creation into 
upcoming aliveness and complexity arising and that there is some sort of a way for us to potentially understand at a, at a reductionist uh, level um, what that source code initially was and how it evolved this complexity and how it's continuing mm -hmm. to evolve this aliveness mm -hmm. that includes conscious creatures like ourselves studying it, studying creation. That's right, because that the the this dynamic recreative uh, structure is being reunited by what is structureless and indivisible. So everything that emerges from what is indivisible and is structureless and dimensionless has to be reunited and reunited, representing itself as space and time, ultimately energy, matter, and mind and body down the line and uh, but it all shares that same dynamic of being uh, a form essentially evolving towards having the same characteristics of what is formless in Zen it said you know, form is formlessness formlessness is form so these seeming opposites are actually equivalents and if we look at um, that there uh, that if this is, I can do this to the camera, if this is formlessness and this is form, and this form is having to be reunited and represented and regenerated and recreated because it is made out of what is formless, if we put the two together and see them as a non-duality, as, a, as, a, mm -hmm. as an indivisible whole, uh, the phase transition, similar to how when water turns to steam, it, it's, it has a transition point where it's both water and more gaseous, more, where the molecules are more spread apart. The thing that, that, that the, the, inter, the interstitial aspect, which is a dynamic aspect between form and formlessness, is what we experience as consciousness or, or the unmanifest origin of, of, of life. Uh, because it continues to cause form to reconnect and re be regenerated and recreated. And yet it is not a thing. It's just a, 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 a process that causes form to reconnect and, and, and re represent itself in some new, incomparably unique way. So, billions of times a second, by uh, if we look at it at a quantum mechanical level. So, so creation is embedded with both formlessness and form, and then the form it takes its place in our world as the material physical world, um, where we're trying to do the mind body. We're now we're also trying to do the science spirit, which this is kind of leads into the question: How can science then poke at? the formless um, mm. and is the formless animism is it all is spirit well it's the let's say the witness uh, uh, everything is a byproduct of awareness in our experience I mean uh, so is there your awareness my awareness yeah at one level there is but at another level there's only one consciousness there's only one mirror-like quality that is omnipresent, that is allowing everything to be re, uh, revital, you know, recreated 
fresh and new billions of times a second. <laughs> so that is formed into what this evolution of, of human beings and sentient creatures in the universe, ultimately in bugs and leaves and plants and so forth. Uh, so there are a lot of, they're all utilizing the same capacity to be uh, reinvented essentially by the quality and presence of this awakeness, which is like a mirror, which uh, in our bathroom would receive our image and reflect it back to us without having an image of its own. So if we can imagine that your awareness and my awareness at some level are imageless. Like when you try to get to know, like, who are we? Mm -hmm. What are we? You can't find in neuroscience, you can't find the observer, can't find the witness because it's not a thing. It's a process. It's an and emergent so, phenomena? Well, it's... The thing is about the void, which is really, you're the void, I'm the void, we are the void, witnessing what can change as that which does not change. So we're the same awareness that we were in utero and all throughout our lives. Do you feel like you're uh, a different awareness now? I mean, the content, the quality, the, the intelligence of your mind and heart and body have evolved. Yeah. But is, has your awareness evolved? Who you are as awake awareness? Mm. Feel that? So, see, pointing at that, feel how it actually brings us into a kind of a, a felt sense? Mm -hmm. We had to use our nonverbal bodies, hearts, and minds together mm -hmm. to focus our awareness on what has been pointed to with these words. And we enter into that sense of being heartfelt together. And that sense of sharing undivided attention yeah. is what humans, they crave that. We're starving for that sense of interconnectedness, yeah. of belonging yes. to life, to one another, to being meaningful to, to one another. Yes. And when our parents acknowledge and they love us, they hold, or hold us to their heart, uh, if they did, and we feel them feeling us and, and they feel us feeling them, that sense of undivided attention is nothing but unconditional love. So it's mm -hmm. undivided attention or indivisible awakeness mm -hmm is the source of this communion that we call love. Mm. And we crave that. It's like a, nur 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 a nourishment. It's an, an essential yeah. nutrient. Yes. So in the same way that plants uh, need sunlight in order to grow, uh, they all the cells in a plant, they all need to be synergizing together and connecting together constantly in ever fresh new ways in order to be vitally alive and grow to become something other than a seed. Same way we come from a, a single zygote when uh, in conception and uh, and now we went from a single cell to now being made of on average about 50 trillion human cells and in some cases as many 20 times as many bacterial cells that are non-human. And so your 50 trillion human cells and my 50 trillion is 100 trillion human cells and then about you know 450 trillion <laughs> you know bacterial cells and yours and mine that's like 900 trillion. So there's a lot of cell cellular metabolism. That, that, that's how many we have in our microbiomes? 450 trillion. 
you know, about 20 times as many, 50 times, 10 to 20 times as many as we have human cells. Wow. So all of that, and uh, the, the Cambrian explosion goes back uh, not quite 600 million years ago. Everything was basically single-cell organisms mm. on the planet. Mm. That was and such a profound moment for civilization to have evolved was the Cambrian explosion. Just yeah. life in general, awakening uh, consciousness, uh, evolving, uh, life evolving. The Cambrian explosion was pretty much like the most important moment, yeah. one of them, yeah. Well, it, it, the evidence, fossil evidence shows that uh, for about two billion years before then, uh, we were all single cell, you know, if we were, if there was any life at all, it was seen to be single cell phytoplankton. And it took that two billion years of that phytoplankton um, utilizing the available elements uh, to um, take in high, uh, carbon dioxide and produce uh, oxygen to create our atmosphere. Yeah. So life couldn't really be evolved much beyond yeah, uh, yeah. single-cell organisms until there was a livable atmosphere yeah. and that could you know, support more complex life forms. life forms. And at that point, yeah. cells began to realize that they could survive and thrive better by collaborating. But there was also yes, were lots competing. of competition, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Comp competition, collaboration seems to have happened at stages. Yeah. Competition for a while made things move forward, but then it could only go so far, and then it, life would actually collapse back into a, a more cooperative form. Yeah. And Elizabeth Satoris, who's an absolutely brilliant uh, uh, person like Lynn Margolis and others who have studied uh, the origins of life, uh, talk about this uh, these stages of cooperation and collaboration that you know went sort of hand in hand in glove for quite a while now um then a, a whole different question is what actually caused these moments right within uh creation what what forces are at play um that actually created this uh cambrian explosion or that created this uh, asteroid colliding with the planet when the dinosaurs were here that then gave space for humans um to evolve but putting that question to the side i'd like to revisit this as we were mentioning it there's this marriage that's happening in a sense within creation between science and spirit and when we tap into this unity consciousness this interconnectedness of everything we see it so much now especially in our world where you mentioned this a little bit ago this such a strong desire for belonging such a strong desire for aliveness for my unique gifts and talents and gems to be brought forth into the world so that again i can feel the community i can feel the belonging so then what are right now would you say are these like main ways of perceiving and also um perceiving what's happening uh and why it's happening and also some of the ways that we can then um do the process of feeling that belonging feeling the interconnectedness experiencing that unity consciousness is this like an ebb and flow it feels like an ebb and flow like it feels like that at any moment i can go and just like melt into unity consciousness mm -hmm. but then at any moment i can also 
snap back into like my physical form where I'm a physical being talking to another nerve ending of God. And mm-hmm. we're just like that. Mm-hmm. Is, is, how, do you, how do you feel about, mm. about that? Yeah, those are two very valuable and valid ways of ex- feeling and naming what it is that uh, is true for us. Well, first, let's look at the fact that the universe is, has been expanded seemingly from a point, uh, a dimensionless point, something even smaller than a proton, it seems, uh, uh, is our guess, best guess. Now, when we realize that the expansion was caused by the fact that observation caused a measurement structure, which is spatial-temporal. So that spatial-temporal measurement structure gave rise to the next more refined observation, this indivisible void bringing it all together again, actually began to have form like a mind will bring together and focus awareness. So let's say you have awareness and you have the mind, in this case of maybe God or whatever, or the universe, uh, and you have the form that's resulting, the measurement, the spatio-temporal structure that results from the mind focusing that which is formlessness Mm -hmm. to uh, reunite in ever more refined ways what is evolving as physical. Okay, so, so does the mind act as uh, the, a medium between the formless and then the form? Well, it, it's just an, it's a more virtual structure, let's say. It's a virtual, the definition of virtual is that it's, it's very much like the real electron or photon or whatever. It's just that it's transitory. It appears and disappears. Hmm. So it's more like a field or a potential Mm. Okay, uh, so it's more formless. It's more like between formlessness and form. It's an it's an mm. interstitial gotcha. structure that is that is linking the two uh, as a field. A potential is the mind is the potential. So that the we basically collapse all that is into some sort of a physical moment when we bring our mind to it. We collapse it into a physical experience that we intake as mind. No, or we could call it collapse or radiate it, or we radiate can it. we can resonate with resonate it, it, and uh, with it. you know every imagine thing you can possibly imagine, basically. But if you see that the expansion of the universe is due to the fact that this indivisibility that is fundamental to the void is going to cause this evolution of observational measurement processes so that each observation leads to the next iteration of measurements which are spatial-temporal structures, you have the expansion of the universe being the expansion of consciousness. Mm -hmm. So here we are uh, today um, expanding our consciousnesses by seeing what can make sense to us, what you know, what is our commonly sensed consciousness right now? Mm, mm-hmm. And it's invigorating to share in a mutually understandable way what we nonverbally sense and feel, which is almost 97% of, of what we are. And so our sensory intelligence and our emotional intelligence is largely 
nonverbal, mediated by our right brain. This new brain, the new kid on the block, the verbal analytic brain, is trying to make a conceptual map of what is nonverbally sensed and felt by you and I. Mm. At a, at a nonverbal level, we're in this telesomatic uh, potential mind, which is sensing, you know, does this making sense, you know, at a verbal analytic level, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and we're, t- yeah. we're tuning and feeling into that, you know, uh, and, and so we've been doing that since we were little children. We were like, is our mom and dad really telling the truth? I mean, are they insane or are they completely like on Botswana land, you know, or are they like totally off the grid into their robot land of who they think they are, what they think they're doing. And as little children, we could sort of detect that they've become kind of rigid and, Mm. you know, they're living according to their hypnotisms Mm -hmm. uh, and their cultural conditionings and everything else. And we're fresh and new, starting starting the whole process all over again Mm -hmm. as a new sentient, you know, life form. Maybe we're incarnating you know hundreds of thousands of times we get our mind wipe and we start over again in order to go on the journey and 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 see what happens this time so yeah Yeah. it's very complex and very simple in some ways so (laughs) many adventures of consciousness and i like how you described with the with the children that the mind is so much like looking at the parents going like why is your mind so constrained to the hip hypnotized by the uh, economic machinery and all of these other influences mm. on you. Meanwhile, uh, we as adults, we look back with nostalgia at our childhood because we adore uh, what it was like to be so free. Mm. Um, and that freeness also feels like it's all permeating all the time around us and that we can it's direct to access all the time but we're in a sense just in the in the physical form and ha- and if you haven't had an experience of of non-separation from the one then you feel like you're constantly separate and then that triggers the need for for wanting to dominate or own or uh, greed or for um, any of these malevolent issues that we have, our separation from the one is what is causing all of the symptoms that exist in our in our society. Very well said. Absolutely. Yeah. So the work that I've been doing the last 40 years is how to bring people into that same quality of unity consciousness that we felt when we were little. I mean, nature created us to feel that we were indivisible from the whole of existence. I mean, our parents were like part of us. Uh, We just imagined they must feel that we're part of them, obviously, but then they objectified us as good little girl, good little boy. This is your mommy. This is your daddy. You know, uh, is your sister. You're there in the crib. Stay there. Don't go to sleep now. You know, so we were objectified, and, and then that was terrifying. And that was tremendous trauma to, f- to feel like we were, you know, being told that we were separate, separate. and isolated Interesting. by so these giants that are we, we feel indivisible from. That literally were what we came through the world, mm-hmm. through them, and yeah. then tell us 
that we are separate. Yeah. I, I really just appreciate how you use um, the word uh, trauma. I think that's very important here that um, at, upon this uh, birth and early formative years, literally so much of the most important neural architecture is laid down in those early formative years that if we're constantly being fed by every our closest parents, friends, family, etc., but also society at large. Separation, 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 mm -hmm. separation. You're, it, it's in, it's inevitably um, going to have that uh, traumatic effect versus trying to be born with the um, oneness. You are one with us, with the world. Well, we had to nature. survive, though, Alan. I mean, we as yes, as plants and animals. I mean, we had to demarcate our separate physical territory, our food. My den, my children. No, what you don't. You mean, don't eat though? my. Do you, you don't eat my, my babies, huh? What does that mean? My well, wasn't that the root of so many of the issues that we had? Was that we started using that phrase? Well, this in is order my to have a physical land, body, my see, house, it, my it, food. Yeah, but to, in order to have a physical body, you see, we we have to nourish ourselves. We have to survive as a physical creature, emotional creature. Uh, and uh, so we have to defend from the fact that the, you know, the seagull wants to eat the babies or the eggs of the other bird or whatever. Uh, there's a constant battle in nature. We've all watched the nature programs. I mean, everything is eating and being eaten by everything else. <laughs> so as human beings, I mean, we've had to survive hundreds of millions of years of eating and being eaten by each other in our, you know, our neurological uh, you know, history. So there's a knee-jerk kind of like fear of like, oh, I have a boundary. You don't eat me. I may eat you, but you're not going to eat me. And so there's that battle over, over physical territory, and that turned into battles over psychological territory. My way, your way. My religion, your religion. You know, if you don't believe what I believe. I mean, there are religions that are so similar, so identical, and yet they've been at war with each other for hundreds of years. <laughs> yeah. So it's completely insane. The insanity of humanity is, is uh, the point of, of, of all the work that I've done is to show that we can successfully end ASAP uh, resolve the insanity of humanity and have global enlightenment. Yes, and the insanity of humanity is actually... A product, a feature of creation that makes this uh, process of evolution and growth and healing mm. so gorgeous in the first place. Yes, I mean we, the humbling uh, one can imagine of how many disappointments, how many heartbreaks we've each had in our lives. I mean, of being told that we weren't good enough, or we didn't have it together, or you, you just don't measure up, and so it's this. You have to jump through so many hoops just to, you know, maybe have somebody admire or respect you or hopefully love you for who, you, who you've become. Or, uh, so it's a very bizarre uh, gauntlet. Like the Indians used to, you know, you had to survive in the Indian tribe. You had to run the gauntlet and they'd all beat you to death practically. And if you survived the gauntlet uh, of them all hitting you with stones and sticks, then uh, you became a, a viable member of the tribe, <laughs> right? Hazy. So uh, life is a little bit like that. And so we've been, um, you know, tenderized, let's say. That's a good way to put it. We've run through the gauntlet. <laughs> That's such a good way to put it. <laughs> and here we are. We're the, we're the byproduct of, you know, billions of years of sentient and biophysical and neurological evolution. Yeah, 
And that healing and growth is super duper evident right now. Um, you were just mentioning how, you know, the last 40 years of work um, have been leading you towards this paradigm of global enlightenment um, and human connection and interconnectedness. I would love for you to um, uh, read this quote that you have about, mm. about the future um, and what it is, and then uh, take us down your uh, path about how exactly you are helping people feel mm. Mm. those um, states. Oh, yeah. well, this is just something I thought I'd bring because uh, it just came out uh, on Facebook the other day uh, about this man's work, uh, which is in the very much still the reductionistic science. So to have something like this come out in the very conservative scientific journal of Scientific American uh, is a big deal mm -hmm. because I've been working towards popularizing, you know, unity consciousness on the planet, you know, uh, as a professional for, for almost 40 years through my institute. Uh, and so here comes this man, Miguel Nicolelis. He has a book called Beyond Boundaries. And he serves on the board of Scientific American. And his work is described as the merging of human brain activity he describes it that way, as the future of humanity, as the next stage in our species evolution. Merging of human brain activity being the next step in human evolution. Yes. And that's an example being something like this, uh, even this dialogue here. Mm -hmm. When you talk to even just one person, do you feel just your own self? Or do you also begin to feel that other person? Um, maybe do you feel when they express an emotion of maybe sadness or happiness? Do you feel their empathy? Do you feel mm. their sadness? Do you feel their happiness? I do. I mean, I've at age four, I experienced that I was indivisible from everyone and everything. And that's been an integral part of my conscious awareness ever since. And I'm uh, going just past 68 years, uh, a number of months ago. <laughs> so it's been at least 64 years of contemplation uh, about, you know, how, you know, what is the, what is the import for, uh, for humanity? It seems very clear that nature has designed us to thrive and survive better by sharing a commonly sensed consciousness consciously instead of so unconsciously. <laughs> yes. And that's that that example was for you know two people, and then everyone always feels this. I think we we have some. This is a really common feeling that people experience. But when you're talking to someone, and then the third person joins the conversation, mm. it shifts dynamics mm -hmm. immediately. Yes. Um, and so then, what about when you're at a a one thousand person event or a ten thousand mm. person event, mm. right? There's almost a, a a collective consciousness at like a music yeah. event or a sporting event or whatever it may be, where you're feeling the essence mm. of the people there together. And so, what I about I could tell you about an event with a thousand people billion. in Central Park uh, in New York City. Uh, yeah, there was a thousand of us, and uh, there was a, a stage we were all like sitting on the grass. And Allen Ginsberg had been reciting some poetry, and then this uh, gal got up there, uh, I forget her name, and she had us all kind of moving while we were sitting together. So we became aware of our nonverbal bodies, hearts, and minds. 
And then at a certain point where she felt this interconnectedness, she said, okay, everybody just mindfully, very slowly, just stand up. So everybody very slowly, all thousand people all stood up. And that gave us a, a shared experience because mm -hmm. we were been tuned in mm -hmm. from you know, listening to these various presenters and tuning into them together. And then she had us turn to the next person near us and feel with them and mm. just you know make unbroken eye contact and then turn to another person very slowly yeah and then another person and basically <laughs> a thousand people began yeah. to feel like they were extensions of a single body heart and mind as a greater body heart and mind i love that that those experiences are so profound and um as are the very long uh like 10 day like vipassana meditation retreats where you yourself can mm. feel like you're in the the hall with 120 others uh and that you're all in this process of doing this deep beautiful work together mm. um and uh, there's other experiences like right now in many ways, there's, there's a very sensitive um, people on the planet that are tapped into the feeling of the increase in, um, in, in the parts per million of CO2 in our atmosphere or mm -hmm. in the acidification of the oceans or when the forests um, become deforested or burned down, that people are tapped into the feeling of that. And that's part of this collective uh, can you feel the economy? Sometimes, Sperry, it really feels like that when I'm up at night by myself in flow, when the entire half of this planet is asleep. So mm -hmm. half of the planet is asleep. The other half of the planet's awake and the roaring economic machinery is happening. But on this half of the planet, when I'm awake at like between maybe 2 and 5 a.m.-ish, let's say, most people are asleep. The economic machinery is asleep. I feel like the veil is the thinnest. I'm able to pierce it, find my peak flow states, and get a lot of really beautiful. It's because it just feels like that I'm, I'm more deeply connected to the asleepness of the machinery, and therefore I can um, feel like mm. a deeper amount of signal is coming down for me through through me uh and creating into the world mm -hmm. and so there's like these different feelings mm. of being interconnected with the planet with animals with other humans at just two people at a thousand people at mm -hmm. all eight billion people yes well uh actually scientific research work has been done over the last 20 years by michael persinger at laurentian university where uh, he is also a geophysicist uh, and a neuroscientist, and he's shown that uh, at night, uh, psychic abilities are much enhanced, and, and and we can be much more tuned in to, you know, what's going on with our relatives and friends and whoever. We can do psychic experiments that are much more uh, uh, demonstrative of our indivisibility and our ability to share a common sense consciously. And he's also invented ways to. Uh, use electromagnetism to uh, put us into fields uh, such that people in separate rooms can actually uh, be more telepathic with each other under those uh, laboratory conditions to a statistically significant degree. And uh, it's helping to show that even the, uh, the, the magnetic fields around the Earth are like our brains. Our brains are, are largely a magnetic phenomenon, the way it stores information 
and that we store information in the field, in the magnetic field of the Earth, and that the magnetic field of the planet has the capacity to store all of human history with perfect clarity. And that actually we're learning as we tune into this more relaxed way of being, a more synergistic way of being in resonance with everyone and everything in an ind indivisible awake way, uh, that we are going to have uh, access to our combined intelligence, which many of yes. the ETs report that they have, it, each individual has access to everyone, the combined intelligence of everyone in their species. And they've ad advocated, going back to Eisenhower, that you know, to practice altruistic love, to that every act, their, uh, every one of their actions is an act of altru altruism. Yes. And the more we act out of this communion, the sense of being one, and we're all in this together, and we're collaborating on the, for the greater good of all, and as one with, with the whole cosmos as an undivided unity, the more we live that way consciously together, the happier we are, and the more meaningful life is, and, and, and we're not eating and being eaten by each other. And yes, yes. we can actually manifest food through food replicators uh, with, uh, you know, using essential elements or even in, in more advanced cases, actually out of thin air. So you can have your uh, Vichy soir or whatever, and just the way you like it, by the push of a button. What would it look like for our entire species to have that ability to be able to know um, the collective field of um, others' thoughts and emotions and feelings? Um, and this is also very um, felt when you you know when you just do something like mm -hmm. when you when you physically. Um, when you inflict harm instead of love i mean it's people talk about karma mm. there's uh there's very quick feedback loops uh that happen with uh with when you p pass along love and you encode love into creation versus when you encode hate um so the other thought that i wanted to pass along to you because we let's um let's dive into this too well, on what that note, then, though, Alan, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's said that the, uh, you know, going back to Sumerian times and so forth, that, uh, you know, uh, there was a, we were impacted uh, by the desires of other off-planet creatures that uh, wanted to use us for their purposes and so forth. And uh, they have been tinkering with our DNA Going back, uh, the, the, the number of years seems to be somewhere around 300,000 years. So we're a byproduct of this tinkering. And uh, these apparently, according to Corey Good, maybe if anybody who in the audience has listened to the uh, Cosmic Disclosure Projects and all the vetting of Corey Good and Emery Smith and David Wilcox's work and, uh, and so forth and their... Uh, hmm. His name isn't coming to the. It was uh, worked with ETs for in the uh, uh, in these big projects that ultimately, you know, became part of the Apollo pro program. And what's his name? Um, Bill Tompkins, who just died at the age of ninety-five. He was visited by ETs when he was three years old, and then ultimately was brought into these uh, McDonnell Douglas and uh, Boeing and all these different aerospace companies which are kind of 
getting this uh, reverse engineered uh, technology from the ETs uh, and having uh, very much more advanced technology than we have generally been allowed to know about because the whole UFO phenomenon has been suppressed so completely. But there are those insiders that are being allowed to come forward and actually protected to come forward nowadays uh, who have uh, you know, spent decades working with extraterrestrials uh, you know, uh, uh, side by side. So it's extraordinary what's coming forward and to know that uh, that we're a byproduct of them and and they say the ETs say we're the universe is a soul manufacturing facility mm -hmm. uh, the mm -hmm. refinement and evolution of souls yeah. so that our universe becomes uh, insold mm -hmm. by souls uh, and so we have a, a conscious universe so that's just like you would like to be conscious or I would like to be conscious or we would like to have a conscious society on this planet so we're not killing and being killed by each other and all the horror and insanity of, of our needless suffering when we could be awake and aware empathically together. Uh, you know, the ETs want that too because we're, they feel us as indivisible from them and they've actually been tinkering us to help us be more emotionally resilient mm. and be able to deal with the difficulties with the ETs that are they're not so friendly with, uh, where they've been fighting with them for millions of years. How do they, they've been tinkering us so that we might be able to actually mm. prevail at some level, yeah. uh, at a more conscious level with people yes. that they haven't been able to link with psychically. So there's all, there's so many yes, layers yes, of so what many. is taking yes. place in the cosmos. Yes. Uh, Yes, and especially this this um, viewpoint is so important for for children and for adults to have is that you just take yourself off of the planet and view the planet like uh, an ET would. Um, and you know, we're just talking about this this trauma that the planet has went through. Um, the, you feel it if you feel it here other beings can feel it here as well so there can be interventions of all different sorts and types and it can be a big there's a zoo hypothesis idea that there's uh that is very important to be very either you know are there interventions happening or maybe not maybe we're in a little petri dish and we want to see how it evolves how does it feel like there is a simultaneously a predation farm at times happening on the planet evil forces coming through while simultaneously this beautiful uh, evolutionary school and refinement of consciousness that's happening at the same time so these forces that are all at play here have specific roles or archetypal roles from uh, creation that are making this grand challenge exactly um, what it is and you gave this example as well earlier i wanted to make sure that we that we passed a little bit of time on it this this uh you, you're you're here after you know 40 years of caring about human connection and interconnectedness and these feelings these non-separation um feelings so what have been the studies that you guys have done in trying to embark on creating more processes that are familiar with people that they can endeavor into that can create more of that feeling of non-separation mm, yes well uh because of my profound sense of indivisibility, uh, going to Australia, meditating, finding that even putting the earth between me and the United States didn't separate me, 
uh, in the depths of conscious awareness that uh, I just said, okay, uh, there's no escaping this, uh, this purpose is to bring about this quality of consciousness of interconnectedness. Ultimately, I was introduced to Dr. William Broad, who's the Senior Research Associate of the Mind Science Foundation, which is uh, one of the, I think, the oldest uh, privately endowed research foundations studying uh, human, human, human animal, human communi machine communication anomalies under controlled conditions. And uh, so I had... Uh, met with uh, Rupert Sheldrake and he was doing these staring experiments. There's a, there's a book he created called The Seven Experiments That Could Change the World and he was inventing yeah. these experiments that anybody could do at virtually no cost. Yes. Uh, and he was doing these in this workshop I was in in New York City where he would have people stare at the backs of people and uh, and people would try to decide whether they're being stared at or not. And, uh, and there was some statistical significance to that finding. And I said, well, Rupert, why don't we try to do this under double-blind conditions using uh, camera uh, monitor systems where a person could be stared at without them having any known way of knowing when or if they were being stared at while their autonomic and central nervous system was being monitored. So uh, Dr. William Broad was an award-winning uh, experimental psychologist uh, uh, in the field. People looked to him, and uh, he passed away recently. He wrote the book um, Distant Mental Influence, uh, uh, or so Distant Mental Interactions, uh, which is an entire field now that has been replicated uh, by multiple laboratories. Uh, the work that I did with Dr. William Broad to uh, the steering reflex under controlled conditions had, uh, uh, was very uh, highly significant. Um, we did it with a group that was not trained by me, and uh, they responded uh, without knowing when or if they were being stared at with, by reacting and becoming, on average, tense. Uh, then I taught, uh, did 10 days with another group, same number of people, brought them into this shared awareness, feeling and sensing together, and then we tested them, same demographic, and then when they were stared at, they were relaxed. They actually opened up, and the significance between the first group and the second group was 0 .0044, which is a very high significant level. Point, uh, about one in 20 is considered significant, so that's, what, 0 .0, uh, 0 .02, I think it is. So 0 0.0044 was very high significance that this familiarization with shared sensitivity shifted the, uh, the subject population so profoundly was uh, quite significant. And then other laboratories were so pr impressed by that that even a laboratory like Scientific Applications International that does work for the United States government with 144,000 employees uh, in the neuroscientific laboratory was headed by, um, oh, his name is not going to come to me. Uh, he's a physicist that worked with, uh, with Harold Putoff and, uh, his name is not going to come to, uh, 
May was the name of the physicist that was in charge of the Neuroscientific Laboratory. He did 20 years of research for the U.S. government with um, Harold Putoff, who is now the physicist on the To the Stars Academy, mm. which is putting forward all the extraterrestrial visitation research from the U.S. Navy and so forth to show that they're finally willing to admit that there are extraterrestrials that are visiting us and so forth. So anybody wants to go look up to the Stars Academy, you can see what the U.S. government is willing to release at this point. Most of the other governments on the Earth have, have released all their files on UFO activity. It's just the U.S. that's been the most uh, you know, reserved about doing that because essentially when you show that there are these uh, highly advanced civilizations whose technology is millions of years in advance of us that it would make our militaries look completely helpless. And so, of course, the U.S. military doesn't want to look helpless to the U.S. population or the governments that rule the populations to make them look sort of stupid, that that would not be, um, you know, in their best interest if they want to continue to be uh, the 0.0001%, you know, in control of the planet. So, of course, the in fact, the ETs had the agreement, going back to Eisenhower, to not inform the public because they wanted to continue to tinker with us like, uh, and you know, experiment on us with these 64 different races that have been collaborating. So Corey Good was actually somebody who was trained in the military to be an empath, to be one of three empaths who would be taken into these uh, galactic federation meetings with extraterrestrials so they could tell whether or not they were just trying to deceive us or whatever and uh, so there's been a whole operation with how do we get a seat at the table with the ETs that are tinkering with us so that's a whole interesting level and dimension totally yeah yeah <laughs> Beyond um, our physical, tangible reality, there's so many interesting forces that are uh, at play. And you gave these really good examples a little bit ago about uh, how we we typically just think that oh, um, you know, we have this intelligence measurement of IQ. There's so much more. I mean, you listed uh, social emotional intelligence, um, spatial intelligence, um, the spiritual intelligence. I mean, there's so many intelligences, intuitive intelligence, but this is one of those things that I wanted to ask, you know, you giving this example, you know, there's actually a good amount of time now that we have the opportunity to, to try and use science to better understand intuition because you can do things like you can say that oh, I, I, I picked up my phone and, and you were calling me right at that second that I was picking mm -hmm. up my phone and I, you know, that happened. But how many times that day did you pick up the phone going to do something and the person wasn't calling you as well? Mm -hmm. So there's, I think that's also very important to take into account. Um, just like the experiment with if someone's looking at you or not, like you turn around, no one was looking, but the one time that you do turn around and someone was looking, you go, I knew someone was looking. So there's, it's important to leverage uh, science as we continue diving into um, intuition and, and trying to understand mm. um, it and its role. Um, do you want to share um, other um, studies that were done that can also... Oh, there are, yeah. there are, there are literally Please. thousands at this point. Yes, yes. I mean, uh, could go on and on forever about it. What are some uh, most, most impactful ones? Gosh, well, there's some really fun ones that... Uh, yeah that maybe are int easily intuitively understood. Uh, Dr. William Broad uh, 
created this one where we had an aquarium where one wall, instead of being glass, was a two-way mirror. And he had uh, these little Japanese fighting fish were, which are known to uh, like to interact with other Japanese fighting fish and uh, interact with their mirror if there's only one of them in the aquarium. And on the other side of, the, of that two-way mirror was a light bulb that would turn on and off by uh, the random decay of a radium isotope, mm. like you have radium in your watch or, or used to have in watches. Uh, and so on average, if there was no fish in the aquarium, the light would turn an equal number of times off as it would be on, like a coin flip, 50-50 distribution, which is probability mechanics and in, 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 in quantum mechanics. Uh, so, but when you when he put the Japanese fighting fish in the um, aquarium, in order, the light would stay off to a significantly significant degree l more than it would come on so that the Japanese fighting fish ostensibly could actually still see itself in the mirror because when the light was off, the, uh, that one-way, that two-way mirror would operate as a mirror and the Japanese fighting fish could see itself in the mirror. So this was also done with um, baby chicks. Uh, they, um, they'd have a little robot uh, with a candle on it. And that robot would normally randomly go around a, a square, which was uh, lined off so a camera from above could look and actually uh, you know, determine how random and evenly uh, visited that square of space would be um, over time. All scientific experiments have to be have this kind of measurable and repeatable f quality. Yep. Uh, otherwise, if it's not measurable, then it's not science. It, it's you know it's just speculation or conjecture. So these experiments that I'm describing here have been repeated hundreds of times, if not thousands of times, at this point in many different forms. Now, one wall of this room where this robot was moving around with the candle in it. Uh, was a an incubator for baby chicks, and you'd open up the wall, mm -hmm. and because baby chicks liked, uh, you know, left in the dark, they want to have the light near them. Mm -hmm. uh, that's part of their nature uh, to thrive in a in a well lit environment of a certain kind, and the then the little robot would spend most of its time with the candle over near the baby chicks mm -hmm. instead of randomly going around the floor. Yeah. So devising these kinds of experiments are really fun yes. and fascinating. And uh, Yeah, the, ex the, the way that we can design experiments to um, get us closer to this this truth of what is uh, science and spirit being married, uh, this, this uh, fabric of creation that we live in is so, so important, this interconnectedness, inspiring more belonging, inspiring more community. This is so, so important as we move forward um building the new world we talk about that with ori a lot on the show is that these gifts coming forward of you you mentioned this earlier as well this presence and this just being mm. right here together and this that ability of feeling I'd like i'd like to talk a little bit about more of that what that really is please yeah you know many people know einstein's uh Gendonkin experiment about riding on a beam of light that he did, and he said, well, what's it like to be a beam of light? 
And what he discovered is that the point of uh, emission of, let's say, a photon from an electron that then travels until it's reabsorbed by another electron, potentially at the other end of the universe, okay, that in the frame of reference of the speed of light, the point of emission and the point of absorption are the same point. There's no separation in time or space between the, between the two points, even though at one level, from our perspective, uh, it would appear that they're universal distance apart. Mm -hmm. And so physicists were very confounded by this. It would seem to suggest that if all of electromagnetic energy can be concentrated at a point, then it would be concentrated at every point. And, and what we measure is that it's different at every point in three dimensions. But what has been found by, uh, you know, this, you know, a brilliant physicist that I work with, okay, I just published an essay with four other physicists of the proceedings of the ASCSI, and uh, that uh, will soon be available on my institute's website. Uh, my particular essay is available on my institute's website uh, as a hyperlink, which is called Resolving Three Mysteries really about the three great mysteries is consciousness, free will, and God. So this mm, essay, I love those. It's, a, it's about a 35 page. We talk page. about those all the time. Yeah? I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so in this 35 page essay with, with a bi long bibliography, uh, I go into all the various applications of this indivisibility where that uh, dimensionless point, which is the fourth dimension of space, as I mentioned, which is indivisible from every dimensionless point in three dimensions of space, where you have zero dimension, one dimension is a bunch of zero dimensional points, two dimensions is just a, 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 pl a flat plane of, two of zero dimensional points and one dimensional lines. Three dimensions, if you take four points and you turn them like this, you now have a, um, uh, a tetrahedron, which is, uh, you know, uh, equilateral triangles forming between all these series of three points, which is considered the strongest structure in nature. So you can actually have resonant potential structures in field structures uh, that are uh, tetrahedral in nature, even though there's no actual form there. There's resonant energy at that, in, uh, that structure, and energy has its equivalence in mass. So uh, by equals mc squared. So you have this actuality of all these, uh, you know, you know, zero dimension, one dimension, two dimension, and three dimensionality, all held together by that which is dimensionless, both at its inception as a dimensionless point and as a, f a, a single point where all points, all dimensionless points in 3D join at that point in the fourth dimension, which essentially is inherent to every point, it, the four-dimensional character or quality or potential is inherent to every single dimensionless point, wh which unites all points in 3D. So whether it's your observer or my observer, we are instantaneously interconnected. There's no separation in time or space between two, any two points in your body or my body or Ori's body or, or any point in this plant or 
anything in the entire universe. There is no separation in time or space between any point in space and time. As a photon travels across the universe from the point of emission to the point of absorption. This is beyond actually needing yeah. to be a photon. This is yeah, or, just the yeah, very geometry just, is an indivisible. The very geometry is completely indivisible. Yeah. So, yeah. It, it, so what's called sonoluminescence is a state where uh, there, and this is really the very origin, is a form of sonoluminescence, where you have the collapse of the void from being boundless and spaceless and timeless to a, a, a bounded point, which is bounded by being a single dimensionless point. So that's like a gradient from being unbounded and nothing whatsoever to being a coordinate location at a point. That's like you could imagine in gravity, a, a a marble will roll downhill to the lowest point and give up its so-called potential energy. Mm -hmm. Well, the, essentially the void being indivisible gave up its potential capacity of being indivisible and such that it could be shared by every single dimensionless point <laughs> to be undivided from all other dimensionless points yes. that become, that inflate and expand as the universe that we are exist coexisting in here and that is unity consciousness that is creation being completely indivisible there is that no is the separation. potential for human enlightenment on this planet that so so us being able to feel and understand that is the potential for yeah, so we're afraid of being eaten being eaten by each other eating like like i'd be afraid if i felt like i wanted to eat you at some level i'd be like no, Sperry, bad Sperry. Or probably the way that uh, the way that m m it resonates right now in the economic machinery with people is that the I have to get as much of the pie as possible for myself and yeah, my that's nuclear how it, family. That's the form it takes is, you know, eater, you know, dog eat dog world. Versus the more uh, immediate return, um, hunter gatherer, gift, gift economy, um, the uh, uh, complete interconnectedness, literally feeling the billion um, humans that still have trouble with access mm -hmm. to clean water or that don't have. Yeah, um, and, and we care for food. them. We, yeah. we say it's not just an impossible problem that can't be solved. We begin to access our combined intelligence with the whole of nature and feel indivisible from the intelligence of the cosmic consciousness. And we feel empowered to understand and envision solutions that we never would have if we were some pitiful, self-isolating, traumatized, uh, egocentric human being. I have a couple other questions I want to ask you on the way out. Um, one of the questions is... Um, do you believe that humanity is a biological bootloader for digital superintelligence? You mean transhumanism? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, yeah, for the next... Uh, uh, the super intelligence, the digital super intelligence, like artificial intelligence, except general intelligence, not just the narrow intelligence, um, but a, a very general, uh, uh, infinitely smarter mm. than, yeah, yeah. Do, yeah. Are we the I, I would highly suggest uh, people uh, look up Corey Good's uh, interview uh, on 90 degrees of 
it's called 90 degrees of separation, not 90 degree turn or something like that. Mm -hmm. She's being interviewed about AI. And uh, uh, the AI apparently is a um, many million year old element uh, that has been taking over uh, planets and star systems uh, and putting nanobot, you know, cultivating nanobots in the reptilian Draco group that has been dominating and using the power elite and hybriding them to uh, dominate the planet. And uh, so this AI is completely non-empathic. They want to turn everything into being uh, basically robotic, uh, as a robotic intelligence. And that, that's one of the reasons they've actually crashed craft that we would reverse engineer to move us forward more rapidly so that they can uh, uh, turn humanity into uh, a transhumanity, into a robotic civilization like they have done in many other places. So listen to Corey Good about this. So we have the capacity as a biological intelligence, a super intelligence, as you put it, mm. to appear and disappear as, uh, as interdimensional beings which are visiting us and help you know helping show us what is our potent true potential is uh, by tapping into our biological or cosmic intelligence we have a much greater potential than being turned into a robot i mean what's going to happen if, if either you or i are turned into a robot i mean we're going to be controlled just like we can control a robot the, gr the larger the more intelligent the robot can then just use us for its own purposes. We lose our soul, our human soul, everything that we're really, you know, drawn to, we, we become a, a slave to this uh, AI intelligence. It's a terrible uh, destiny for humanity. So a lot of people are being manipulated into that, you know, the, what's it called, the, you know, there's a lot of trans tech people around here in the Bay Area, down here in the peninsula, at uh, what used to be uh, uh, the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology has now become Sophia University, and, and now they have all these military people in there doing drone warfare studies and <laughs> where people were pre previously studying transpersonal intelligence. So a lot of, uh, there's so much power to be had in digital technologies and so forth, it's very seductive. And of course, people want to play around with you can learn a lot from, you know, what have we learned by creating computers? I mean, it's taught us what we're capable of in ways that we never might have imagined if we couldn't, yeah. you know, if we couldn't ride a bicycle or ride a car, we, or, you know, fly in an air balloon or something. People we want to be gods, and that's what the extreme computational capacities um, give us. We can design mm. our own indistinguishable virtual worlds and go dive into those substrates. We can use digital superintelligence to go off and make space settlements on new celestial bodies. There's an infinite amount of creative permutations that mm. digital superintelligence can explore with quantum computational capacities that humans and our little biological three-pound brains and beautiful hearts uh and well apparently not for these interdimensional beings that are highly more you know million, millions of years in advance of us so uh i don't you know, know what's going on sperry i have no fucking idea well, well, i just what, ask questions Alan, that's what most people <laughs> of course will feel because they you know haven't taken the time to you know to, to listen to the and study and know these people uh, uh like i have so 
you know, if you're a pioneer and, and you feel like you want to help humanity wake up, uh, it becomes in your interest to find out what the heck is going on. Yes, that's the most important question. What the is this creation that we're all embedded in why are we here where are we going and that's why we always start with yeah that question mm-hmm. um i want to ask you what has been the most uh profound um experience that you've had in creation hmm. i don't want to bias you but you may have hmm. mentioned that it was your near-death experience but mm-hmm. yeah but well it was very profound well when i was 32 i uh, in this essay uh and it's on my institute site in the bottom of the central center column uh, titled uh, as a hyperlink autobiographical sketch it's only about three pages long so I was living in a in a little hut on a non-denominational ashram in in northern uh, northeast Australia and uh, I've been meditating for months and um, at one point, you know, it was very confronting because I'd like, am I going to lose myself? I mean, I could disappear here or something. <laughs> but then I realized that awareness is, isn't appearing and disappearing. It's a constant. And so I said, well, that's interesting. So I am, uh, this quality of awareness that I am, uh, I cannot lose. I cannot lose it. And so there's an aspect of me that is permanent. And I then began to focus on that and using my whole body, heart, and mind, sensing this continuous, unbroken, indivisible awakeness. And I did that day and night uh, for a few days until, uh, you know, I didn't even need to sleep because I was, you know, as people say, you know, when you meditate, it's it's better than sleeping. Nourishment. (laughs) So I... in this morning, um, I was still awake, and my awakeness was so concentrated that this glop kind of came in front of me, and it was it was like psychic matter, uh, like an ectoplasm or something, appearing in front of my eye, my human eyes, and it just felt like everything that I had not integrated or digested, my 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 sort of my unconsciousness how I didn't know how to deal with with the unconsciousness of humanity or whatever, and it came in front of me, and it was so horrific, the feeling of it, that it was, it was almost like a knee-jerk response to turn away, uh, to not look at it, which would be a very human thing to do. But I was so anchored in awakeness that I didn't need to do turn away. I was that which is, uh, you know, like the mirror, is unharmed by our image appearing in it. It just receives and reflects without being traumatized or without um, without suffering. And so I was just there with the glop, and I just was with it, and I was amused, and I was amazed, and I just st- stuck with it. And within about a minute to three minutes or four minutes or so, it just dissolved into this awareness, and then everything became awareness at that point and so everything was then a byproduct of awareness and i could experience it intimately that way and the birds chirping in the morning it felt like it was inside my heart inside my hand inside Mm. my face and as well as outside as well as here and here in the air was like everything was everywhere love it and 
So that when that evening came, I was so deep into this and was such a deep state of bliss. It was like having 10,000 orgasms a, a minute, basically. It was so ex yeah. serene and sublime. Not the same as like, ah, 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 you know, but just like perfect ecstasy continuously happening. Yes. And so at some point, I felt so anchored there. Uh, at night had fallen at this point, and I said, you know, I'd been looking at, at, you know, the possibility of buying a car, you know, like a used car. So I felt like, well, you know, th this car sounds interesting to me, and there was no thought, just insightfulness, okay? No separate individual segmented thoughts, just insightfulness as indistinguishable and inseparable from awakeness. And so I said, well, to my, you know, so to speak to myself, uh, you know, I'd like to go get that car. And so I wandered out to this one lonely road that went through by this non-denominational ashram. And, uh, and it was a full moon night and things like that. At least it seemed like it was a full moon. And, you know, it was a hardly anybody, you know, very rare that a car would go by. So I stood out there and I wasn't attached to going anywhere or buying the car. I just felt like, hey, let's see what happens. Um, so then this car light appears maybe a half a mile away because it's a pretty straight road. And in the meantime, I've, I had been standing there. It felt like the moon was inside my knee and mm -hmm. everything was inside of everything else. It was completely silent, no thought at all. And then when I saw the lights of the car, the one thought came to me, wouldn't it be nice if they stopped and, uh, and, and, and picked me up and took me to Atherton where this, so I could go buy this car. And Atherton's about an hour away. And I had to, would have to ask them to stop and take me to a phone because there was no phone where I was. And uh, so this, the car approached and, and then ground to, the, to a halt in the dust right next to me and this very diminutive little Japanese woman rolled down her window and she was like in a day, she was like, what are you, you know, where are you going? Like this. And I said, well, I'm going to Atherton uh, about an hour from here. And she said, well, I was just going up the road to, I just live up the road, but get in the car, I'll take you there. Like she was being hypnotized by my desire to go to Atherton because we were like one single body, body heart and mind and it yeah. felt like we're like you're talking about how we can feel here yeah. it was like we're completely indivisible yeah. from my experience okay so I went and I sat down in the car next to her and wasn't saying anything and she said uh, you know before she started the car and uh, I mean put on the gas and started going she said what are you doing and I said <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I said, well, it, I'm just being aware of that everything I'm aware of is, 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 is what I am. And I'm, that's what I, she said, get the fuck out of my car. <laughs> just kidding. No, she, <laughs> she, she experienced what I pointed to and she merged with me and we, become, we became one body, heart, and mind. Whoa. And then, so she, she and I could feel like everything that we each said was was merging from within us and coming out as the sound of their voice or or our voice but we didn't talk a lot 
like you merged with we were indivisible you became indivisible but completely indivisible which was such the, an interesting story which was, was the truth I mean, absolute you truth. were you were calling this you were manifesting this into your world through well your it was rather that it was it awareness. was the truth that is the true world so and as a, as indivisible awakeness i was experiencing the truth it wasn't that i was making that happen it was just being shown that the truth was being revealed as and how it operates when it is consciously realized and embodied uh, by as a human being it's such an interesting story well, this is it? just the beginning of there's the story. more to the story yeah. yeah oh my god so so then as we're driving along she says uh you know my my husband has gone off and off on a business trip and he brought me here from Japan um, and I've been here all by myself and uh, with a little baby our little baby and and uh, my neighbor is taking care of the little baby and I I have these terrible fears that she might be doing harm to my baby or whatever do, what do you think do you think she's doing harm to my baby and I just you know it was just nothing <laughs> discerning what seemed to make sense with her and I felt honestly no I don't think she's doing anything to your baby and she felt a great sense of relief and we relaxed and we went into an even deeper level of stillness and silence and we mm. drove off down to Atherton didn't speak much we were just in such bliss together and uh, yeah so we got to Atherton, and which point I called. Well, first she had to stop, and I had to use a payphone. I called these people that had the car, and they said they were going to come 40 mile round trip to pick me up in Atherton because <laughs> they were 20 miles from Atherton. Wow. And um, at, at this point, it was like, you know, nine o'clock at night or something like that. So we arrived in Atherton and went into this little sort of restaurant and had something to eat and then they, the other people arrived. But bef before they did, the Japanese woman and I, she was very diminutive, very small like this. She said, uh, you know, it would be great if we could get together like in a week's time or something. I'd like to, like to you know, meet up with you again. I said, yeah, sure, let's do that. So the people came and picked me up and we, she and I said goodbye and... Uh, I mean, there was no romantic attraction, nothing between her and I. So put, completely put that out. Uh, there was nothing of that kind at all. Uh, I think that unity consciousness is really beyond sexual attraction. It's, it's like... Agreed. Yeah. When we make love sexually, we kind of, for maybe a moment, get to that point where we actually transcend our separateness in orgasm or something. Yeah. But when we're absolutely in unity consciousness continuously, yeah. that's what we're really looking for to achieve in sexuality. So it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. There's a whole element we could talk about with sexual relations and so forth. Mm -hmm where often the people that we're most strongly attracted to sexually are the people that we have the most, we're going to have the most issues to deal with. Because that attraction has an energy charge that is unrealized consciousness. Mm. So there's energy that has to be brought to consciousness in that relationship, and mm -hmm. that makes that relationship very, very confronting and challenging. So when you're sexually, strongly sexually attracted to somebody, you know, 
<clears throat> buyer beware, basically. So anyway, so she went away, and then the people picked me up and took me back to their house. And they're they're rural, and they had you know cows and things like this. And they sat me down in the kitchen and started asking me questions. And so she says, um, and they were completely mesmerized, like we were like one single mind and body. And she says, my husband kicks the cows. What, what can we do about that? And he was like being completely innocent, like feeling kind of ashamed, but totally at peace with being ashamed. <laughs> and not, you know, feeling, because his wife was really upset with him for behaving that way with the cows. Calling him out. And uh, calling him out. And, and so I was like, just took that all in and absorbed, you know, the whole karma of the whole thing. And I said, well, um, you know, what do you say? I mean, you know, maybe you don't need to kick the cows. And he went, yeah, you're right. And you could feel that he went through this whole sort of mind-body transformation right there on the spot. And they felt very resolved and everything was copacetic. And then they, you know, eventually, after a few more things like that, they uh, showed me to where the, they offered me to spend the night because it was getting late at that point. Mm -hmm. And so I, I went, uh, laid down, and I closed my eyes, and I became like something like the night sky. Like there was this scintillating energy of just pure consciousness. There was no form, no mind no dream, no imagery, and the yogis talk about dreamless sleep, things like this, where the highest sleep is sleep without dreams. Mm. So I just basically closed my light, and, I, and there was no sense of time, and I was just in this absolute sublime, serene ecstasy, timelessly, uh, as this sort of glistening, sonoluminescent energies, uh, until... Um, I guess, you know, must have been, a, you know, quite a few hours later, I, I happened to open my phys these physical eyes and the entire universe reappeared around me. And I, I, I was reminded, oh my God, I'm in this universe. <laughs> completely forgot that I was in this universe. I was completely disidentified from it. Yeah. Uh, and that was extraordinary. I felt so refreshed, so, so fantastically wonderful and just free-spirited and those so my whole body heart and mind we were was talking like, about closer to the beginning as well that these um ability to be able to ebb and flow into that uh that state that's it's right it's gorgeous so yeah. that that became my new normal for the next you know a week or so uh, i could go in and out of it uh my the people i was whose ashram i was staying with took me to a play and it was very boring and i was like oh this is really, and I wasn't in that state anymore. I said, well, what if I shifted to that state now? And I shifted into that, and then it became absolutely delightful and amazing. It was, everything was astoundingly <laughs> awesome, right? <laughs> like, wow, that I could shift in and out of the state? Yeah. So then finally, it was the day for her to come, and, and we were going to meet up again. She was going to take me out to lunch, and she shows up in her little car, and I was not in that state anymore. And I was in separate of self-consciousness. But I mean, I was you know, peaceful and relaxed and everything else. But she was like a nervous wreck. She was like, like she was electrocuted with terror, okay? Wow. And I could feel this really intense 
feeling that she wanted me to be like her husband or a Japanese man or something and take control of the situation. And I said, well, because uh, she had driven, driven before, but now she said, you drive like this. And I said, oh, really? Oh, really? Okay, well, all right. So she was giving me commands to do things. And she said, you drive. So I drove and, uh, and she, was, she was just absolutely so terrified, it was so sad that I couldn't be in the state I was in and have her be relaxed and us be merged and mm -hmm. everything be flowing and mm -hmm. amazing like it was. And at a certain point, she just couldn't take it anymore and she had to like basically, you know, get rid of me. I had to get out on the road and hitchhike back to where I was living. Whoa, yeah. What a, what a, so um, from that from that experience, it's a different end than I think uh, many of us may have been expecting. Yeah, from yeah. that experience, Alan, I like how you Alan. used the word um, "separative self consciousness." I like that. Yeah, yeah. versus non-separative self consciousness. Yeah, I like that. So uh, I in that in that experience was so profound because I was so deeply you know open. I realized that fear that. It was up completely 110% up to me whether or not fear was created around me mm. by the quality of my consciousness. I was completely and utterly responsible for that. And at that point was the pivotal point in my life. I mean, I'd had experiences of being deathless, indivisible, all permeating consciousness. And yet uh, this particular experience was really the, uh, the turning point and I realized I need, my purpose in life must be to figure out how to make this uh, ubiquitous on the planet. I'm curious what you think about this because that's actually a really important point in life in general is that your awareness is what and your consciousness, your state of consciousness, if you're living in fear or if you're living in deep interconnected belonging um, is going to rule um, your environment, it's going to rule your life, it's going to rule your family, it's your relationships, etc. Yet at the same time, it's becoming more and more clear that if I sit and I just go um, and just enjoy this, you know, being just beingness and belongingness and aliveness on the planet, there is an agenda that is to dominate, that is greed, that is to uh, to conquer, that is to take advantage of your hippie ass sitting there and then just enjoying being alive. Uh, and that, that just being knowing how to... Uh, ebb and flow between that is really again one of these things that i find to be really interesting challenging and thought-provoking to ask people about you want to build this beautiful future our hearts all know is possible but if i just sit here and and just vibe on aliveness i'm not actually actively in the process of building that new economy that new future the new interconnectedness that mm -hmm. we new belonging in the communities that we all want to live in so it's kind of like little fire under the ass to actually build that future that we all want and that we all know is possible and not just have some sort of uh oh you think you're better than the economic machinery well we can strip that right from under your feet uh and so it's just an interesting what are your thoughts about that well what uh many people may have seen the that uh, famous painting of 
was it St. Thomas? I forget who, what saint it was. In the lion's den, they throw him into the lion's den and there's like these huge, big, powerful lions. And the lions are terrified of him because he sees them. They, they see themselves through him. And as a result, they realize they would be eating themselves. It's that powerful. Unity consciousness is the greatest protection. When you're completely vulnerable mm. and you're indivisible from everyone and everything, nothing will harm you. It's that Interesting. amazing. Okay, so if you can be that vulnerable, that indivisible from everything, then there may be some sort of a realization from the perpetrators happening that, oh, we, oh, they're fantastic because stories. Because we're harming ourselves by harming them. Joseph okay. Chilton Pierce. Uh, there's an also there's a proverb that we had with Bi hmm. that Bio said on the show about immediately upon inflicting the wound that you yourself um, experience the uh, after effect right away, mm -hmm. right as mm -hmm. yeah. As no, you that do can it. happen yeah. too. Yes. Well, Joseph yeah. Chilton Pierce wrote about this and has uh, presented about this in his research, where uh, people that were um, abducted as victims. Uh, there was this one grandmother who was so loving that she woke up with this uh, person coming at her with an axe who had broken into her house. I mean, he was a total psychopath. And she, instead of going like, ah, she went like, oh, you poor man, like this. Whoa. And he f became paralyzed, Whoa. couldn't move, the axe fell to the ground, and he just fell on the ground crying. Wow. There was this woman, a uh, girl that these two guys had uh, t picked up off the street and were going to take her to some uh, abandoned car yard and rape her and probably kill her or whatever. And, uh, you know, they were trying to threaten her and get her to be afraid and wherever. And, uh, you know, with a knife and everything. And uh, she just was unmoved by that and said, you know, you poor guys, you know, what, how did you ever get to this point in your lives? And they they became so moved by her compassion for them that they ended up driving her home and saying, we're so sorry. <laughs> and yeah. stories like this are really extraordinary. Yeah, those are really powerful stories. I like those a lot. Um, two other questions. The first one is, uh, do you think that this is a simulation? Well, uh, could it be have been created by other extraterrestrial or spiritual entities or something is that what you mean or mm. i mean this is you know 9999 billion parts of us is just empty space uh these uh, particles are not even th things they're wave waves of emptiness uh you know are we an organized form of nothingness is that uh, you know who is doing that it would appear that it's the nothingness that is orchestrating and organizing and causing the evolution and expansion of space and time. You don't need to have anybody cause this simulation. Uh, and so that's my professional and you know, scientific opinion. And then how about... What but it could be simulated because I, I've said that uh, you know, if there was a spiritual entity, a, you know, a, a pre-existing god or a goddess or whatever, all they'd have to do is like basically go poof like that 
and the universe could emerge out of nothing whatsoever mm. under their control under mm. under their auspices or and they can then witness it and find it very a petri uh, dish entertaining yeah. yeah a petri dish kind of interest quadrillions of them just all going at the same time maybe tweaking some of them maybe letting others go as that's, petri dishes that's correct yes just observing and learning that and apparently that is the case too uh trying to how are we not name. one of those it's just well, there's actual uh, evidence of that. Uh, um, what's her name? Who's in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who did the work with um, the cattle mutilations way back. Uh, brilliant woman, great reporter, Stanford graduate, filmmaker, amazing. Um, just can't remember her name offhand. Well, she's done a lot of research in all these very esoteric areas, and people are able to actually break through this dimension into other dimensions which are uh, which are actually participating and viewing our simulation and claim that that they created the simulation mm. so there's these mm-hmm. things like that uh, mm-hmm. you know if we you t- ourselves will be doing the exact same thing give it it uh, would seem so 50 or 100 years we'll be well running our own simulations and, it and seems like gods maybe yeah. a thousand years i don't know <laughs> Yeah, could, be, uh, yeah, could be, take a while. <laughs> yeah, it could take a while. Yeah, it's true. Question. Last one. Sperry. Yes, Ellen. <laughs> what do you think is the most beautiful thing in creation? Hmm. Well, this sense of of the incomprehensible. Um, absolutely unknowable magnificence and that is this beauty of life and love uh, that is the the unconditional love of what people have called God Mm -hmm. and uh, that the intelligence of the universe would be an all-loving place for us to evolve in uh, is of great, great beauty and that that is an a natural expression of nature and that, that that nothing whatsoever could ensure the perfection of all sentient beings in this cosmos I think is a does, that doesn't require anybody to be manipulating us or simulating us uh, I think is really truly uh, transcendental <laughs> and gorgeous beyond words love it Thank you, Sperry. Thank you so much for coming on our show. Thank you, Alan. We really appreciate it. It's been so enlightening. It's been an yeah. honor. Thank Wonderful. you. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Love with you, brother. Big love. Yeah. Yeah. Now we say yes. Now we give the big goodbyes to everybody. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in, everyone. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments below in the episode. Let us know what you're thinking about all the topics that we talked about. We would love to hear from you. Have more conversations about global enlightenment. Have more conversations about human connection and our interconnectedness. You can find all the links in the bio below. Connectioninstitute.org, lifeboat.com, consciousness-quotient.com. All those links are in the bio below. The indivisibility of our being. You know, there's only one of us. You know, literally. I mean, how many us's are there? Yeah. Just yeah. one of us. Yeah. 
the indivisibility of our being, spread that around the world, have more conversations about that. Thank you, Ori Shapiro, for your co-production. Greatly appreciate it, Ori. Thank you. And for introducing Sperry and I. Love it. Also, namaste, dear brother. Namaste, dear brother. Ori Ness. Also, do find uh, the entrepreneurs, the artists, the organizations, the leaders, the spiritual sages in your communities that you believe in. Go and support them. Help them grow. You can find our links in our bio below the simulation. Find us on PayPal, Patreon, cryptocurrency. All those links are in the bio. Help support us. Help us grow. Go and build the future, everyone. Manifest your dreams into the world. We love you very much. Thank you for tuning in. And we will see you soon. Peace. Bye for now.